The following message is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. What I would like to do in this session um, is I want to assume that maybe you know know nothing um, of this this issue. Um, So what I want to do is uh, speak a little of um, the state of play as things are nationally here um, in America, um, then say something of how things are um, as it relates to states here. And then as we are in Ohio, uh, uh, a little about Ohio, then I want to speak a little about Scotland and the state of play there in Scotland. And then what we are doing is hope for Glasgow as we seek to uh, play our part um, and uh, bring in a solution uh, to these issues. I uh, suspect that um, some of you are here because you know only too well um, the state of play. Uh, these issues are rife in your communities and they're um, on your doorstep. Maybe some of you are already getting going um, with you know, trying to provide a solution. Or maybe some of you are tearing your hair out, wondering what can we do, what can I do uh, as we, uh, you know, as, uh, to d- address this issue. And so maybe, maybe I hope this session will be helpful for information, for clarification, uh, and even a bit of encouragement to keep doing uh, what you're doing. Drug deaths totals in America uh, from the beginning of what's classified, cla- uh, distinguished as the opioid epidemic beginning in 1999. So from 1999 to 2022, we see there in 1999 just under 17,000 uh, drug deaths in total, but by 2022, uh, five and a half times that, but uh, for 110,000 uh, deaths. Uh, Put another way, more Americans have died of drug overdoses in all the years from 2017, 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22 than were ever killed by guns, car crashes, or HIV AIDS in any single year in the U.S. Since 1999, the death toll from drug overdoses is higher than all U.S. military deaths combined, going back to the American Revolutionary War of 1775, minus the casualties in the Civil War, the American Civil War. But if you give it another two years, the way things are going, I would be able to say more than all U.S. military casualties ever, okay? Since 99, more than 1.14 million Americans have died of drug overdoses. Just another way to put that. More, More Americans have died during this epidemic, than live in every major U.S. city apart from nine. Since 2020, 308,498 have died. And for this decade alone, figures are predicted to be over one million deaths. 110,000 in 2022. How does that relate per capita, per 100,000 of population? Well, back in 1999, it was six. And by 2022, five and a half times that at 33. Now, that's the national um, average, the national average. What about in our states? Well, back in 2005, there's the top 12. New Mexico was there at the top, 20.1. But if you look at uh, the graph to the right, uh, we see that things are very much changed. Anybody stay on there? Anybody stay on there? What state? Ohio. Any others? What? Pennsylvania? Kentucky? Yeah. Okay, so 
There we see the national average just now, 33. West Virginia is up there at 90.9, almost three times the national average. The state that we're in here in Ohio, one and a half times um, the national average. In 2005, the worst state was New Mexico, 21.1 deaths, uh, 20.1 deaths per 100,000. But by 2021, 41 states had a higher per capita than this. The crisis in the USA is reflected by the crisis in Ohio. Um, in 1999, 467 drug deaths. This represented 4.2 per 100,000 and ranked Ohio as 36 in the union. By 2021, uh, just under 5,400 5, deaths, which represents 48.1 per 100,000. In 2021, Ohio suffered the fifth highest death rate. The state with the highest death rate is California, uh, 10,901. Um, the state with the highest per capita, as we've already seen, is West Virginia, uh, 90.9. There's just those figures there that I told you um, reflected in a graph. Ohio's deaths have went up, increased 11 and a half times since 1999, from 467 to 5397. Same per capita, 4.2. 48.1. Just some of the counties here. Um, the, counties, the county figure is 48.1. Seattle County, 83.4. Montgomery County, 65.1. Galea County, 62.6. Cuyahoga County, which is uh, near to Cleveland, uh, 37.7. And the county we are in currently is Geauga County. And I just included those. There are counties with higher rates than this, but I just wanted to include these bottom two because they are the closest two to where we are uh, geographically today. How the epidemic has changed over 20 years. This is a quote from um, Keith Humphreys. Keith Humphreys is, was a drug policy advisor to two different American presidents, George Bush, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. Here's what uh, Humphreys says. One thing we have learned from the opioid crisis is that no criminal organization can generate addiction as well as the health system can. That's because of the volume of drugs that they can produce and put out, the trust that people have in them, and the people's lack of awareness of what they are using might be addictive. It really does dwarf anything illegal markets can do. The second thing we learned is that markets evolve, and legal and illegal markets end up affecting each other quite a bit. So even though the people who originally distributed the opioid pills were doctors, it was an easy transition for illegal markets to grow up, feeding off that legal market. And that's sort of a different from how we often think about markets, because usually we think an illegal market will be driven away by a legal one. But what was really remarkable in the opioid crisis case is that the legal market spawned and an illegal market. And that is pretty unusual. And this is what Humphreys is getting at. When we talk about the opioid crisis, we've really had three opioid crises going back um, to 1999. Three crises that all crash in to one another. And we're currently in the third wave. The first wave began in the late 1990s and the early 2000s due to a huge influx in the prescribing of prescription drugs from companies like Purdue Pharma, 
and their drugs that they produced OxyContin, which led to a mass of people being addicted. If any of you have, have got Disney Plus, it's on Disney Plus where I stay, but there's a wee mini-series on there called Dope Sick, and Dope Sick charts what this first point is talking about, okay? They had a, an FDA-approved um, sticker on their meds that said, this, this drug here, OxyContin, causes less than 1% addiction. And so doctors thought they could prescribe it for things like dental pain, headaches, menstrual pain. And it led to a mass of people being addicted. Well, in the late 2000s, OxyContin was made less easy to use. I think, I think the, the, not the potency, but the hit, you know, it was, you know, it was slower release. And that worked for the abuse of that particular drug. <laughs> but it led to the use of cheaper opioids, heroin in particular. And that's the thing that Humphreys was getting at. This led, the legal market led to an illegal market. But since 2010, we moved to a synthetic opioid crisis. So prescription drug crisis, heroin crisis, and now a synthetic opioid crisis of fentanyl and carfentanil. Back in 2021, 106,699 Americans died of drug overdoses. 75% of those, or 80,000 deaths, were attributed to opioids of any kind. 66%, or 70,000, were due to fentanyl um, and carfentanil. Well, amidst all this chaos... Waiting times for rehab centres across the USA, well, they're very long. Many people have to wait months to get help, even up to 18 months in states like Maine. But by that time, many addicts are dead. Just different figures from my own country, Scotland, but the same trend. 332 deaths in 2001. Uh, and by 2020, 1,339. Relationship per capita, 6.6 .6 in 2001, 24.8 2020. Scotland is a sick man of Europe. Um, how I wish this was a table for football, you know. But my country, Scotland, always seems to be top of the table for things that you never want to be top of the table for. So there you see our per capita, 24.8. The European Union average, 2.3. Scotland is roughly three and a half times worse than the UK national average, ten and a half times worse than the EU average in countries like Germany, and 13 times worse than France, Italy, or Poland. From this slide, really the only thing I want you to really take note from this one is, of the deaths recorded, of all the deaths recorded in Scotland, 53% of those deaths involved methadone. Now, methadone is the choice drug uh, that our GPs use to wean um, addicts off drugs like heroin. Now, what I'm not saying is that methadone killed them. Methadone was implicated. There was methadone in their system when they drug tested them, right? And again, what I'm not saying is, is that everybody was in treatment. But I'm sure that a huge percentage of those deaths were in treatment, okay? 
because it's easy to buy methadone in a black market. You can buy it in the street. So it doesn't mean that somebody was in some sort of a treatment because they had methadone in their body, but a, a huge percentage would have. Just like the trends here, 75% uh, of your drug deaths from opiates, 89% of ours. 73% uh, involve things like diazepam, ben benzodiazepines, and other drugs like gabapentin or pregabalin, 37%. Uh, Our national average is 24.8. There's my own city up there, Glasgow, 44.7, followed closely by uh, Dundee, 44.4. Uh, um, if you were here and you were British, you would notice something significant about this top 20. And the something significant is all of the major English cities, they're not there. London, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, Newcastle, they're not there. A small town like Falkirk, number six, you are statistically more likely to die of a drug overdose staying in a small town like Falkirk up in Scotland than you are in a big city like London. I share this slide um, because, you know, it was 2019 was the last time I was here. And I keep saying to Dan and my other friends on the pastoral team here, the world is such a different place now than it was in 2019. And it's, it's all because of what happened on this slide, um, uh, COVID. But during 2020, you'll remember, that was the year of the virus without the vaccine. When the, when the virus was doing its worst without the vaccine. But in Scotland, in the under-65s, more people died from drug overdoses than coronavirus. COVID deaths in Scotland in the under-65s, people who died with or of COVID, there's a distinction, 651. The same demographic, same time frame, 1,339 with drug deaths. You, are, you were two times, more than two times more likely to die of a drug overdose in Scotland if you were under 65 than you were of COVID. In the same time frame, 1.1 million Americans have died with COVID. But over 800,000 of those are over 65. Right? All I'm trying to say there is that most of the lives that are claimed by COVID are much older people. But the lives that are claimed by drug deaths are much, much younger. It's young Americans. This is killing. Um, but, but in actual fact, I just want to say this as well. Um, COVID is one of many viruses that rise and disappear, appear in the world stage, cause, cause damage, and disappear. What I'm going to go on to say is this, what I believe biblically is at the root of addiction is sin. But the issue of sin rises and rises again this year, and that year, and the next year, and it causes its devastation year upon year upon year upon year. A flawed diagnosis will always lead to a flawed solution. No matter how good your solution is, if the solution, if the diagnosis is flawed, then the solution will be flawed. Um, the politicians, every time that our drug deaths are revealed, the politicians are wheeled out and they say, oh, it's terrible and this and that, and they get their photographs taken with drug addicts and, oh, we're going to do something and all that stuff. And it's the same over here as well. And, and, and they refer to it as a national public health emergency. 
You can see that our country needs power to treat addiction as a health problem, not a crime. It's time to decriminalise drugs. And there's two parts to that, isn't there? It's a health problem, so we need to decriminalise everything. Um, people dying is a health problem. That's part of, it's a health thing, right? Um, but what they're saying here is, is at the root of addiction issues is a health issue. Stems from the medical model of addiction. And so, therefore, if it's a medical issue, we need to medicate it. And that leads to a lot of harm reduction issues. So we want to give people drugs for the rest of their lives. Because if you've got diabetes, well, we'll give you insulin. If you've got a heart problem, we'll give you aspirin or maybe an angina spray. If you've got the illness of addiction, well, we'll medicate it. Um, and we'll give you drugs. Um, we want to decriminalise drugs. But what I believe we are passion is that what the Bible te teaches about addiction issues is that the heart of addiction issues is not a health problem, although there are health problems associated with it, but at the heart of addiction issues are issues of the heart. A worship disorder. Romans chapter 1, we exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worship created things rather than the creator. Um, there are many who believe the scriptures to be true. But when it comes to addiction issues, they don't allow the Bible to shape their view. It's almost as if they rip 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 right out of their Bibles. Herschel's last session there was very helpful as he dipped into 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 and 17. We need to help our people and we need to be absolutely convinced ourselves that all scripture is profitable. It's helpful um, for life. Everything we need is contained in the scriptures for life uh, and godliness. So there's people who believe the scriptures to be true, but when it comes to addiction issues, they don't, they don't allow the Bible to shape their view. And a, a wee verse there, that a wee quote I picked up for Herschel, he says this, worse than not believing the Bible is believing the Bible, but not teaching the Bible. So we can shrink back from, I, I, I want to be popular. What is it he says? Don't be cool and likable to be a preacher. You need to preach the word. You need to preach the word. I'll no get them in. I'll no get people in if I, if I, Tell them what the Bible says about addiction. Well, you need to. We need to share what the Bible says. We're not allowed to change it. So a flawed diagnosis will always lead to um, a flawed solution. It brings us to uh, hope for Glasgow. Dan, what time do we finish again? Okay. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, hope for Glasgow. Um, here's what we're doing. Um, uh, Strapline is clean and connected. We would like everyone who comes to our services or to our support groups to get clean from substances and connected to support. Um, I think the opposite of addiction is connection. Um, the opposite of addiction um, is connection. And so we want people to get clean from substances connected to support. We want them to get clean from sin and connected to um, the Saviour. Um, Hope for Glasgow was formed in 2016. Uh, Dan said in his introduction, uh, my own background is drug addict, um, probably from the ages of 15 to uh, 27, homeless, 
uh, on the methadone programme. Um, and uh, I got clean in 2001 and was converted seven days later. Um, I was involved in a, a Christian day programme, as we would call it, a community rehab, more like an outpatient than inpatient. Um, I ended up, I got a job there, worked there for 16 months. Uh, sorry, I was there attending the groups for 16 months, and then I got a job there, and I worked there for five years. Then I went, I went to Bible college and trained um, at Bible college. And then for nine years, I, I, worked, at, uh, I worked in the Tron Church, um, right there in the heart of Glasgow. Um, I worked there under Willie Phillip. Previously, my, my pastor was Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson. Um, and so we're right there uh, uh, in the city centre. And the genesis of Hope for Glasgow began when I was working associate minister's job uh, there at the Tron. Um, the drug death figures were going up and up and up. And, uh, and I had a burden to, to do something about that. Uh, we had a couple of support groups. We, we, we began with one support group. Hope for Glasgow was born out of one support group. You need to begin somewhere, don't you? Just one group, and then it led to a non-profit organisation. Um, one group, uh, but then, you know, when you're working with people in addiction, the biggest commodity uh, that you need when you work with people in addiction is time. And you guys know if you work for a church, time's at a premium. Right? And so I was preaching, I was doing pastoral work, I was doing funerals, and I was doing addiction work. And I didn't have a lot of time. And it's not really something that you can do half-heartedly. Right? Um, and so I, I left my job at the church, took a sidestep. Uh, I didn't move on from the Tron, uh, but I did move out of the Tron um, and set up Hope for Glasgow in its own right. We're a non-profit organisation uh, with our own elders, uh, sorry, our own board of directors, um, and as I say, um, we are a community rehab. So folks come to us during the day. They get input, support, uh, group work, one-to-ones, um, and then they go back. They go back home at night. I like this model. I think this model fits the New Testament model better than, say, residential rehabs. Now, I understand some people need to go. They need to go away. Um, but when I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, and the Apostle Paul is outlining... Uh, uh, what the Corinthian church comprised of, sexually immoral people, swindlers, revilers, homosexuals, um, um, and drunkards. And sometimes I like to think about what the Bible doesn't say. And here's what Paul doesn't say. He said, hey, wasn't it good we were able to send you away to Athens for six months <laughs> while you got sorted? And then you could come back, you know? It doesn't say that. No. They were washed, they were cleansed, they were justified. Where? In Corinth. In the community of the local church where they had been running about causing chaos. That's the power of God's word. Right? It's not an either or thing. Do you know? But I'm just saying, you know, God's word can change people. It can change people. Just like it did the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. People that were running about crazy can be sitting, clothed, um, and in the right minds, in the same places where they were running about uh, mental. Um, we're based in the city centre, which is good. We're only one bus journey away um, from everywhere uh, in the city. And it means, you know, Glasgow has got a lot of, a lot of housing projects, uh, housing schemes as we would call them. And if our project was in one of the schemes, it would put people off coming. But the city centre, there's no tribe in the city centre. Nobody owns the city centre. 
It's very neutral, which makes it easy for people to come uh, to. Come to. Hope for Glasgow is a network of ministries that, um, that interact with each other. Um, I've tried to show that here. Um, one of the reasons that the Dead Sea is dead is because the water in the Dead Sea doesn't go anywhere. There are some ministries and churches that are Dead Sea ministries. They don't go anywhere. There's no thought given to how does this ministry relate uh, to the overall ministry of the church? And where is it in relationship to the overall ministry of uh, Jesus Christ? Um, there is a book uh, written by a guy called Peter Bolt. Uh, Peter Bolt, and it's called Mission Minded. And it speaks into uh, this very thing. Um, so we always want to be moving people on, right? As churches, we always want to be moving people on. And the end result where we want our people is in church on a Sunday, in Christ and the worshipping congregation of God, and serving um, in the people of God. But how we might get them there from when we first meet them, there might be a few steps to take. And that, um, that book, Mission Minded, would, would help you with that. So we try to show that there's, there's relationship that each of these um, um, relate to each other. We'll begin with the evening meetings because that's where the work began, um, when it was in the church. I don't really know if you have many roundabouts here, a lot of straight roads um, in America, but we have plenty of roundabouts, far too many roundabouts um, in Great Britain. And we, uh, our evening meetings are called Road to Recovery. And we try and sort of uh, uh, depict what we are all about uh, through this image. Um, and we say this, life and addiction is like being stuck on a roundabout. I mind once being in a car with a guy um, and, and we missed the exit four times. Man alive, man, I was dizzy. We're going round and round. But life and addiction is like that. Life going round and round in circles. The same thing every morning, the same thing every day. Absolutely desperate for meaning, but so full of denial that we pretend that everything's all okay. And every now and again, your addiction will give you a little holiday off the roundabout. Sometimes you end up in hospital or ENR eh, because of the damage that you've done yourself. Maybe you need your stomach pumped. Maybe you need Narcan because you've overdosed. Or maybe somebody has assaulted you, you know, because you've been loose with your mouth. Or maybe because you owe them money eh, for drugs or something. Sometimes we end up in prison because of the lifestyle that we're living in order to feed an addiction. Or maybe simply because we've jumped behind the wheel of a vehicle eh, under the influence. And sadly, and I'm sure we all know people for whom this is true, Sometimes, sadly, we end up in the cemetery. We end up dead. But it doesn't have to be that way because there's another road called the road to recovery. And you get on the road to recovery just exactly the same way as you get on the road to addiction by making a choice. Choice. But this time it's not a choice to pick up a drink or a drug. This time it's a choice to pick up the phone. This time it's a choice to put out your hand and ask for help. This time it's a choice to come to a support group and begin to change your life. And all along that road, choices must be made. Where you go, where you don't go. Who you hang about with, who you don't hang about with. How you fill your time, uh, how you don't um, fill your time. And you may see there, um, the road to recovery, it's a narrower road. See that? Everything I try today has got teaching involved in it, right? So when you come to my meetings... Um, it will be a Christian with a background of addiction, 
that shares what their life was like, what happened and what their life's like today. But you don't just hear stories of recovery. You hear stories of something that goes far deeper than sobriety. You hear stories of salvation. So people who are not just walking the road to recovery, but who have found redemption. And redemption not in a program, but in a person called the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they are beginning to walk the narrow road. Because wide is the road um, that leads to destruction and, and many are on it. But narrow is the road that leads to life uh, and very few uh, find it. Um, I'm just trying to look here for a wee quote uh, from Sinclair. Um, just on this uh, addiction. Um, let me find this. Here we go. When we think about where we go, where we don't go, all that stuff. The things that are true for addicts are true for Christians. Right? Here's what Sinclair said. Like recovering addicts, we will need to make daily decisions and commitments to live out the new life. This will involve conflict and requires resolute resistance. The gospel calls us to live under the reign of the Spirit in a world order dominated by the flesh. We do so as former addicts to the flesh, perhaps for many years. In the process, we may experience many painful withdrawal symptoms. There will be many battles, hence the urgency of Paul's exhortation daily, hourly. We need to keep walking in the spirit, refusing to return to the flesh. Now, I share that. Why? Because when we think about addiction issues, we often, we often put people in two categories. Those that are prone to addiction issues and those that aren't. And you'll hear people say things like, I have an addictive personality. Well, good for you, because I've never met anybody who doesn't have an addictive personality, right? So we want to place people in two camps, a bit like the Pink Floyd song, us and them, right? But, but you know, those who are prone and those who aren't. But the truth of the matter, brothers, is that we are all already fallen. We are all already fallen. Sin is an addiction, right? And sin claims more life than 110,000 overdoses in America in a year, right? So that's what we do. Our evening meetings. When we first started our evening meetings, we used to do these in partnership with the churches. We had a staff team, and we would go in, and we would do the thing. We would go in, we would leaflet the area when it was starting. We would turn up, we would do the meeting. Our aim was we were trying to create pathways into these Bible teaching churches, right? We were trying to strengthen and widen the ministry of the church. But there was a flaw in what we were doing. The flaw? There was nobody represented from the church there in the meeting. We were doing all the heavy lifting, right? So the church then weren't doing addiction ministry. We were doing addiction ministry in the church. And so therefore, if somebody was at the meeting, and, they, and I'm saying, you know, come to this church. And they were saying, well, will you meet me? Will you be there? Will you meet me outside? And I said, I don't come to this church. So here's what we're doing now. We do have a couple of meetings uh, that we, we, we run a week. We have a meeting on a Monday night, which is a blended approach. It's in person in Glasgow, but it's also online. People join me from Florida, Canada, New Zealand, um, all over Scotland, and indeed 
um, England. And there are people from these parts of the world who have come on to my meetings and through the help and the support that they've got there are clean. In fact, and all of them are Christians. <laughs> all of them are Christians with addiction issues that fell back into addiction issues. I actually work with some people who actually developed addiction issues after they became Christians, right? Because it's a sin issue. You can fall back into it. So here's what we do now. Um, we want to mobilize, resource, and train the church to get going with addiction support groups there in their own area, right? Um, so some of the resources that we will, you know, give folks are reading materials, um, uh, that roundabout scene that you've seen there, you use that so that folks know this is, this is the right meeting, um, and resources of people who are able to share for you um, um, at your meetings. So strengthen and widen the ministry of the local church. We have a couple of meetings a week uh, there in Glasgow. Um, we started another meeting in partnership with a church called Musselburgh Baptist Church. You may hear Alistair speaking of his good friend John Shearer, um, and his son Graham Shearer was here a number of years ago. That's his church. Um, they're over 50 miles away from Glasgow. Um, so we've started a meeting there, and we have started a meeting in a church in Liverpool, the home of the Beatles. Um, that's over 200 miles uh, away from Glasgow. And there's a few churches uh, chatting their doors uh, looking for help and to say, you know, we, we need to do something about this issue. We're trying to create pathways into good Bible-teaching churches. We believe the local church is central to addressing the addiction issues in our city and beyond. Um, I believe we are passion that at the heart of addiction issues is the sin issue. That at the root of addiction is choice, sin, false worship, and ultimately idolatry. That's why drug addicts, there needs to be clear pathways for drug addicts and alcoholics into church. There needs to be. Because they're in church under the, um, the staple diet of the word of God. You'll be, you will be taught how to fight all the idolatries of your heart. You'll also be taught how to worship God and how to worship God in every area of your life. And worshiping God is the best defense against all sin um, and all addiction. So we believe the local church, not hope for Glasgow, the local church is central to addressing the addiction issues uh, in our city. If you were to ask me to crystallize what we are all about in this phase of hope for Glasgow's life, I would tell you about the two eyes. The first eye is to help the individual who struggles with addiction issues. We want them to get clean and to rebuild their lives. The second eye is we want to help the institution of the church to begin to start dealing with these issues. I did a similar talk to this. Uh, I did a similar talk to this at a, a conference. And uh, a pastor, a good pastor in a good reformed church, um, he said at the end of the thing, he said, Terry... In one hour, you have turned on its head everything I before believed and was taught about addiction issues. In one hour, you have turned on its head everything I before believed and was taught about addiction issues. Brothers, if that's the guy in the pulpit, what about the people on the pew? I listen, I, I, because I'm from an addiction background, when the Bible talks about the drunkard in the New Testament, my ears go up. I'm saying, what does the Bible say? And the Bible always relates to the drunkard as a sin issue, never a sickness issue. It's a sin issue, right? So if, if, if at the root of addiction issues is choice, sin, false worship, and ultimately idolatry, if that's at the root of the problem, that's actually good news. 
Because guess what's at the root of the solution? True worship. And that's why Jesus makes a difference. If we had someone who was in the Cleveland Clinic who uh, had a terminal diagnosis of cancer, and we went up there as a, a crusade, and, we, you know, and, and the wee lady got converted, well, unless God miraculously moved in that lady's life for a second time, she would still have cancer and she would die, yeah? But if a, if, if a drug addict gets soundly converted, if an alcoholic gets soundly converted, then I would expect with the right input and the right support, that drug addict will rebuild their life. No, I'm not saying they won't fall back. Because, you know, the, uh, sin no longer reigns. But sin remains. We still need to keep battling. It's not one and done. Have you been cured of all your sin issues? Right? So we can fall back. Um, so that's why we believe the church. The church. And see teaching this as well. See drug addicts. They don't, they don't feel happy coming into churches. Because they think we're all good people. They don't realize that Jesus came for the sickles, that we're more sick than they could ever, ever believe. And so they don't like coming in. But when I teach them that at the root of addiction issues is sin, choice, false worship, adultery, idolatry, slavery, rebelliousness, foolishness, then the, the things that are true for them as drug addicts are also true for you as sinners. And it begins to, you know, bring the gap down a wee bit. You see, you know what, these folks might have, you know, they might have two shoes on the same. You know, that guy might have a suit, you know, but fundamentally we are the same. Um, Desperate need of a saviour. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so what would happen, we have a Christian with a, a background of addiction who will share what life is like, what happened, and what life is like now. Um, if you want me to Christianize that, it's Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. What is the presenting issue? They are drunks and they are drug addicts, right? But they need good news, man. Here's what the Bible says, and I don't, I never shrink back for it. Never shrink back. The presenting issue may be that they are drunk or they are drug addicts, but here's what the Bible says, and you were dead. Some people say to me, Terry, you've got a very dramatic testimony. I wish I had a dramatic testimony. You know, my, te my testimony is very, very boring. Um, you know, I, I, I wish I'd been a hell's angel or something, or, you know, I'd, I'd been in and out of prison a few times, you know, and, um, but I, I wish I had a dramatic testimony. I wonder if you're ever tempted to think that. But if you're a real believer, you already have a dramatic testimony. It doesn't get any more dramatic than, and you were dead right you were dead verse 4 but God made you alive so what has happened in the gospel is not rehabilitation it's not behavior modification it's not resuscitation as if we were just asleep and we needed woken up no says Paul what has happened in the gospel is resurrection and you were dead but God has made you alive right I actually think that's why drink and drugs and sex are very appealing to folks. Because they give the feeling of being alive, don't they? You know, because we're dead. Um, so, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. You were dead. What happened? God made you alive. What life is like now? 
walking in the good works that he pre prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So somebody will share their story about what life was like, what happened, where, where drinking drugs took them, the damage, um, attempts at trying to get clean, sober, um, things that they, they, they wouldn't do, things that they would do, um, how they finally became sober, got, became a Christian, um, and what their life is like uh, today. Other times, we do readings from, um, from God's Word. Um, the Bible may not be the first book that people think about when they think about a book that will help them with addiction issues. I've got a wee friend called Robert. Robert was one of the first guys on our programme. Um, he's now graduated. He's in heaven. Um, he, he died of a, a drug overdose in the first week of the pandemic. Um, Robert was my star pupil. Um, Robert knew more about a biblical understanding of addiction than most pastors I know. Um, but he fell back into that sin. He made one wrong choice, um, you know, and he died. But Robert was in McDonald's one night, and he was with a, another drug addict, a boy that goes to Narcotics Anonymous. And they, I don't know, they had a burger or something. And then they, they left. And when they left, they bumped into this lady who was also a drug addict and uh, uh, who, who was clean. And she said, oh, you've just been for something to eat. Where, where, you know, where, where are you going now? And the other wee guy says, well, I'm going to an NA meeting. And she says, oh, that's good. And she says to Robert, are you going to the NA meeting as well? And Robert says, no. He says, I'm, I'm going to a Bible study. And she went, a Bible study? A, a Bible study? What has the Bible got to do with addiction? And Robert was dead funny. It was as quick as anything. Um, and, he, and Robert said, what does the Bible have to do with addiction? Well, apart from every page, nothing. <laughs> Absolutely convinced that the Bible speaks to the heart of the issues that affect us, which are the issues of the heart. Right? We were made to worship, and if we don't worship God, we will worship everything and anything, and ultimately ourselves. So we read from God's Word um, so that we can help folks to see that the Bible is not an old, dead, irrelevant book. The Bible is right up to date and speaks right into the heart of the lives and the circumstances that they are facing, right? So let me give you an example. Um, Genesis 3. Right, boys, I'm going to read Adam and Eve. And you can see the eyes rolling, you know. We don't believe this nonsense, you know. Um, and uh, that's okay. So we read the story of Adam and Eve. And, you know, there's Adam and Eve. Um... They are deceived. Well, Eve is deceived. She is deceived. Um, they do what they shouldn't do. They don't get honest about it. They feel shame. They try to cover up. Um, when God comes, they go hiding. When God addresses Adam, he plays the blame game. It was the woman you gave me. Sort it out between yourselves. It's nothing to do with me. And then, and then what happens? They are banished from the garden. Relationship destroyed and broken. Well, I only need to get two minutes into unpacking that. And the guys sitting in my group go, I'm Adam. I am Adam. This is where we need to get to. It's the application of the Bible as it is applied to addiction issues. That's what Ed Welsh says. Um, that's the book that I would recommend, Addiction, Banquet in the Grave, written by Ed Welsh. Probably the best thing I've come across. It's a bit technical, but it's brilliant. Um, as it is applied to Addiction issues can take you anywhere, any book of the scriptures, even though it doesn't mention drink, drugs, sex or alcohol, and apply it to the modern day problem of addiction issues because they're just the sin issue. 
like Sinclair says, like recovering addicts. We need to make decisions um, every day. So we want them to see that the Bible not only retells their story. Wow. I scared I can see that. I'm Adam. Yeah. But we want them to see that the Bible rewrites their story. So that it has a better ending than Adam, Genesis 5, and he died. And it ends with an empty tomb. He is risen. He is not here. So that's what we try and do. It's part of our program, our day program, support for those waiting to access the program, and it's support for a wider recovery community. Again, I'll just say this in the passing. Um, most of the people I work with became addicted after they were converted. Not before, after. A lot of people think everybody's stories like mine, drug addict, clean, Christian, wandering off into the sunset. No. We've got a guy, the guy who heads up our uh, Musselboro meeting, uh, Stevie, fine guy, fine Christian guy. Stevie became a Christian in his early 20s. But he still continued to drink alcoholically all the way through his career as a police officer, right up until he was 53. He went to Alcoholics Anonymous because there was no sort of a support group at his church. And he thought that people in the church would never understand him or his issue. He was wrong. He went initially to Alcoholics Anonymous. Fantastic. Tremendous place. Helping me get sober. Helping me get on a stable footing. He fun our meetings during lockdown. Online meetings. He did not believe there was other Christians who struggled like him. He could not believe on our meeting there was Christians like him. Unbelievably so. Um, loved it. And, uh, you know, as I say, we've helped him to set up. He heads up uh, our meeting um, in the church in Musselburgh, uh, 50 miles away. I've got ex-football players, ex-golfers, social workers, grandfathers, mothers. Up and outs and down and outs and everything in between because it's a sin issue. Quickly run through this. Um, as I say, it's a Christian drug and our evening meetings feed into our day programme. So anybody can come to our evening meetings, join us online, come to as many or as little as, as they want. But if they say, you know, I want, I want more support, I need more support, I need more structure to my day. Because, you know, I, I've put down drinking drugs, but I've now got 24 hours a day to fill. What am I going to do? So, you know, help them with teaching um, and structure, a, a, a day programme. And we promote total abstinence from all drink and all drugs. Let me just say this. 110,000 Americans in 2022. How many? That's with drugs. How many with alcohol? 140,000. That's the addiction that Nene is like to talk about. We don't like to talk about that one. 140,000 Americans every year. That's the five-year average between 2005 and 2019 CDC figures. 140,000 Americans. 380 every day with alcohol. 303 with drugs. Nearly 700 Americans every day with addiction issues. That's 700 too many. And we, the Church of Jesus Christ, need to be mobilized. We need to go. We've got the answer to this. The eternal answer to this. I was at a conference recently, BC UK. It was on mental health. BC UK are the British arm of CCEF, and it was on mental health. The guy who was speaking was a guy called Steve Midgley. Um, he had been a psychiatrist. Um, he was a senior pastor and a biblical counsellor. And here's what he said. He said, since the rise of pharmacology medicine and the disciplines of psychiatry and psychology... 
the church of Jesus Christ has took a backward step from those with mental health issues. And what we have said is this, we better leave it to the experts. We have nothing to offer. I listened to a lecture from David Paulison. David Paulison quoted a guy, um, I don't know the guy's name, it was a PBS documentary. This guy was the, uh, the, the director of American psychiatry, the top guy in the whole of America. And here's, I paraphrase what the guy said. He says, you know, we can alleviate some symptoms uh, by the prescribing of medication. He says, but really see when it comes right down to it. People need meaning and relationship. Meaning and relationship or purpose and relationship. Tell me that's not what Jesus Christ brings. That's not what the church of Jesus Christ has to offer. And I think I've actually observed the same thing in the realms of addiction. Since the rise of the 12-step fellowships, who do a great work. Please do not leave here thinking I'm down in 12-step fellowships. I'm no. I'm no. The rise of 12-step fellowships, gentlemen, is probably because the church of Jesus Christ has given up her God-given calling of going to all the broken. We think the gospel and the Bible is all right for the easy cases, but we better just leave the hard cases to other people. And so we back away and we say, we better leave it to the experts. And so therefore, when we send the guy down the road to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're great at helping getting people sober, but they teach spiritual things as well. And if you, have the, if you as the pastor have sent the guy down there, then the guy's going to think, well, it must be kosher because the pastor sent me here. So the Church of Jesus Christ needs to get mobilized and take this ground back. We need to take this ground back. It's our God-given calling um, to, to deal with people with these, with these issues. I believe that passionately. Um, that's why I say I'll hope for Glasgow, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help the individual and the institution that is, is the church. Now, I understand for some of you here, you don't come for a church like Parkside. There's no 20 guys on the team. You're there yourself, laboring yourself. Your heart breaks because you see people in your community. And you know, I would love to do something. I would love to, but it's going to fall on me and it'll kill me in the process. Well, it doesn't need to fall on you. If something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Right? If something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. People are dying anyway. It's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. So you need to pray to the God of the harvest that he will send laborers, that he'll raise up people in your church that have got a heart for this. At least three, four, five people. It needs to be a team of people. One individual will kill them. A team of people. So that you can start and begin somewhere. And you as the pastor, it's nothing to do with you. Your job is to preach the Bible so that you can raise up saints for the works of ministry. Okay? Um, so, sorry, total abstinence. I, I don't know why. I, alcohol, I go in there for that, sorry. Um, but total abstinence. I am not a temperance guy. See if you take a drink. See if you drink alcohol. I'm all right with that. I can't drink alcohol. I can't drink alcohol. We promote total abstinence. There are some people who say, if you've only ever had a drug problem, there is no biblical mandate against drinking alcohol. What a load of nonsense. A load of nonsense. It's just a wisdom issue. Um, the, the, goal, the goal for me is not sobriety. The goal for me is obedience to Jesus Christ. And abstinence actually helps me to be obedient to Jesus Christ. I used to go to Alcoholics Anonymous sometimes and Narcotics Anonymous. I, I love going to these, but I love, I love being with addicts. I love being with people and I love hearing people's stories. And, and there was an old guy called Swan Huey. Swan Huey, that was his name. 
and he knew I was a Christian, and he was wanting to deter me from the thought of ever socially drinking, taking a social drink. And I would say, I was always a social drinker. Social welfare gave me the check, and I drank it, right? Um, <laughs> you like that one? Uh, um, but um, here's what he said to me. He had to use something that would get through to me, and he knew I was a Christian. And he said, we man, he said, see when Daniel get out the lion's den, he didn't go back for his bonnet. Brilliant, right? When Daniel got out of the lion's den, he didn't go back for his hat. He didn't go back for his hat. Now, what he said wasn't biblical. It's no there in the text of Daniel chapter 6. I've checked. <laughs> it wasn't biblical, but what he said was deeply theological, brothers. And what he said really, in essence, was this. Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Now, why would you want it? Drinking drugs destroyed my life. Destroyed everybody's life that came into contact with me. I've got countless pals, countless family members, countless people that I've supported that have died with drinking drugs. Why would I even want to go back to that? Obedience is the goal, not sobriety. So we promote total abstinence. People come on, they say, look, Terry, we need a wee bit more help and support. We do an assessment of needs. They come on, onto the programme, and then, you know, they must come to the evening meetings as well, uh, three days a week. A biblical approach to addressing and understanding addiction, as, I, as I've said, you know, and uh, I've already outlined that. Some of the materials that we use, Crossroads, which is a workbook that goes along with the Ed Welsh Addiction Banquet in the Grave book. Uh, we use Christianity Explored. Um, some of you may know Rico Tice, who's been here in previous years. So it's great to get a biblical understanding of things, and you can be really hung up and all that. But what is actually the gospel? We need to tell folks the good, the good news. And, so, and we use the identity course, which is uh, based in John's gospel. It's fantastic. Heart of Addiction. Some of you may know a guy called Mark Shaw. Um, we use some of his material. And we re- use the Real Change material, which is born out of um, the biblical counselling uh, movement. Real Change, how we change. A lot of practical group work, like building a support network, dealing with anger, dealing with shame, dealing with guilt, and being assertive. Uh, one-to-one support, which is dead vital uh, for people, uh, an environment for people to be able to talk about what's going on, what's happening, um, and where it's needed. We get folks in um, to counsel folks biblically. Our festive meals. Um, our service runs all year round. We don't shut. You know, I, we. Uh, I think about my own church. Our growth groups, our midweek Bible studies, they may close in the middle of December. And then they say, well, have a nice Christmas and we will see you in the middle of January. We can't do that when you're working with drug addicts. Um, And especially over that period. I mean, who here doesn't find Christmas hard? Christmas, Christmas time is probably one of the hardest times for us, isn't it? When maybe we remember our mothers and fathers or brothers and sisters or family members and friends who are no longer with us, or maybe even relationships that we know need restored. Uh, we feel these things more keenly at Christmas time. Um, but think about that for the drug addict. Um, um, you know, here's a story. The good news and the bad news about getting clean. The good news is you get your feelings back. The bad news, you get your feelings back. <laughs> right? right? Because you begin to feel things that you haven't felt for years because drinking drugs have numbed you. So we're trying to provide a safe, substance-free environment 
to be able to celebrate these days. So here's a story. Here's a fella. He gets sober in September. He is beginning to thaw out. He is getting his feelings back. And as it approaches Christmas, he is beginning to think about his wife, who's now his ex-wife. His three wee boys, who he's not seen in five years, because he always carry on, turning up drunk, coming late, no turning up, bringing them back. His wife said, I've had enough of this. She goes to court and she gets a court order, no contact. So here he's beginning to sober up and he's beginning to think about his wife, his new ex-wife, and his three wee boys who he's not seen in five years and how they will be spending Christmas with their new father. That's hard, man, right? That's hard to deal with. As hard as that is, do you know what the hardest thing is? You caused it. You caused it. You put drink and drugs, a relationship with drink and drugs, ahead of your wife and your children. It's hard, man. It's hard. So what are you meant to do? Sit there, say, poor me, poor me a drink? No, we say, well, come to us. Spend Christmas Day with us. Be here. We're your family. We're your family, man. Or it may well be that you do have a spot at a Christmas table, but it's not a safe spot because there will be drink and there'll be drugs there. So again, to overcome that, be with us. This isn't a hardship for me. This is a joy for me. These guys are my family. I love it, man. I love it. My, kid, my wife and my kids are there and we invite folks, you know, bring your mother, bring your mum with you if you're clean, but bring your mum, bring your family here, you know. Tremendous days to celebrate you know, him that came into the world. <laughs> uh, light and life to all he brings, including drug addicts, risen with healing in his wings. Just what we do, a three-course dinner, tea, coffee, a talk given each day, and, you know, just for opportunities for folks to volunteer with us and stuff. Partnership. This is, usually, this is usually a thing that I do with churches at home. So churches and individuals who want to be a hope partner. That's good, isn't it? Hope for Glasgow. You can be a hope partner at Hope for Glasgow. I stole it. Um, if you uh, support Truth for Life, you're called a truth partner, right? And I thought, oh, that sounds pretty good, that. So I stole it. Um, in actual fact, in actual fact um, uh, the name Hope for Glasgow is stolen as well. If any of you are familiar with Tim Keller, who Alistair prayed for, um, you know, Tim has a whole thing called Hope for New York. Um, I didn't steal that, but my chairman stole it. Um, he said, that's good, that hope for, let's call, let's call ourselves hope for Glasgow. So, um, you know, so we steal things. I mean, I used to steal things before I was a Christian. Uh, um, and I'm, I'm still stealing things. <laughs> I'm struggling. Pray for me, brothers. So if, you know, churches and individuals who want to be a hope partner can pray. This work is tough. Your prayers are needed. Let me just rephrase that. Wherever you find yourself... Involved in ministry, it is tough, right? Whether you're dealing with down and outs or up and outs, it's tough. Whether you're dealing, uh, you're, you're ministering in Beverly Hills amongst millionaires or down in Queens amongst down and outs, it's hard work, right? Because the hardest thing to deal with is the heart of man, right? So don't let anybody tell you that some type of gospel work is harder than any other type um, of gospel work. All gospel work is hard work because we're dealing with the hard hearts um, of unbelieving men and women and boys and girls. Connect, follow us on social media, keep up with us, join our mailing list. 
you can volunteer if you stay in Scotland. Um, you know, um, you can explore, consider the possibility of having a road to recovery evening meeting in your own church. Donate, tell others what God is doing, and hope for Glasgow. So a network of ministries that together form hope for Glasgow. Okay, good. Thank you for your presentation. I've got a question about when it when it comes to the roundabout, right? The, in most twelve step programs, are about performance. It's about you know counting your days. It's about and and often I've found in past experiences uh, there's a lot of shame, you know, in when people trip up, when people relapse, when people. Um, go back to that and of course shame tends to keep you in that cycle keeps you around in that circle so without coddling somebody how do you, what's your approach for dealing with people who relapsed dealing with people who trip up um, just you know they're, they're in your program and they're going through and then yeah. they trip up so okay good good question um, this is true for people in my program, it can be true for us. It's true for people who are in our churches, Sunday by Sunday, right? They've stumbled, they've fallen. Um, I, we also do some key rings. So if someone comes to our meeting for the first time, they get a white key ring saying welcome. The white key ring is um, representative of surrendering. If they get 30 days, we give them a key ring. 60 days, we give them a key ring. Um, we bits of encouragement along the way, you know, get them a call, well done, well done. But the same also when people fall back, um, you know, there's the, you know, as you say, um, they can feel shame about that. So I, I think Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous are big fellowships, right? And you've maybe not always got the same people at the same meetings all the time. So I don't want to do those guys a disservice. But when you're at our meetings, it's usually the same. It's like church, right? You know, we're trying to create, like, church family. Um, and so we encourage folks. We all know we've been there. Um, so one of the things that I say is, um, I stole this again. Everything, I've, everything I say is stolen, right? Um, I stole this for Paulison. And Paulison said this, and I, and I say it a lot at our meetings, I am not interested in the speed you're moving at. I'm interested in the direction you're moving in. It's always more important direction, not speed. As Spurgeon said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. It's not about how quick we get there, it's about getting there. Um, right? Um, and so if somebody's coming and they're saying, hey Terry, I drank again. Hey Terry, I drank again. I say, well done, well done. See if somebody see if you're not honest about the last time you've had a drink or you've had a drug, then you have not had a drink or a drug for the last time, right? Uh, worse than liquor, let's just put it like this: worse than liquor is the lies that are associated with the life of the drug addict, right? Um, um, Jesus speaks about the father of all lies uh, in John chapter eight, and again Ed Welsh speaks about this. Um, he says that um, that. Uh, Lies, lies betray, 
what kingdom we belong to. So if we belong to the kingdom of light and God and truth, uh, we will be truth speakers. But if we speak lies, it betrays the kingdom that we belong to. So I want to encourage folks with honesty. I couldn't care if they keep coming saying, I've drank again, I've drank again. I encourage them to say, you're headed in the right direction because you're being honest about it. And if you just keep coming, I guarantee you, I guarantee you you'll get this. We've got a lady who's on our meetings at the minute, um, a lady called Pamela. Um, Pamela was once nearly five years sober, um, but she's been drunk for about 12 years. Coming to our meetings, two days sober, I've drank again. Three days sober, I've drank again. Eight days sober, I've drank again. Pamela's currently over um, 30 days sober. She was chasing that 30-day key ring, you know. It's a wee goal for her, you know. Um, Now, abstinence time is not everything. I've always said, I would rather die drunk and know Jesus Christ than die 50 years sober and not know him, right? So um, we, we probably can deal with these falls a wee bit better, maybe, or a wee bit more warmly than maybe 12-step fellowships. For the reasons I've pointed out, it's not that they don't deal with them warmly. My my best friends are in 12-step fellowships and they would get right around about people. So I hope that that answers you. Um. Um, The issue of homelessness and drug addiction, uh, they're related issues most of the time, aren't they? And so while everything you said about drug addiction is also true of homelessness... Um, What do you mean? Well, I... I don't have a statistic to back it up, but aren't most of the homeless, at least the ones we see in the United States, related to drug addiction and alcoholism? Is that true? No, well, certainly not in the UK. What, what, is, it, what is the cause? Okay. Mental illness. Mental illness. Can, I, can I ask? That's where my question okay. comes in. Okay. So I'm in Fort Collins, Colorado, in the West. Uh, we have probably, like you in Phoenix, a lot of people that we would just say are transient. They're not homeless that live homeless where we are. They, they're, they're there. They, they, they work their corner. They beg until they get run, to the, run out to the next spot by police or, or whatever else. Most of the transients, hom- homeless people that I encounter, um, are on meth, fentanyl, marijuana, alcohol. They also, though, it's taken several to rehab, that kind of thing. They also have a bipolar diagnosis. They have some other sort of diagnosis that comes with it. And so my question is, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, was it, you know, we have people, people who in our mental health professions say, well, they're bipolar. That's the reason they're a drug addict. And I think that it very well could be the opposite. It's that they got it connected, you know, addicted to drugs and this is this is what you hope is the solution, but it's a mis is it a misdiagnosis? Is it a flawed diagnosis and a flawed solution? Okay, good question. Um, we actually have a guy um, who's done our program and serves as a volunteer at our Monday night evening meeting. A big guy called Ian. Ian will be coming up for three years sober uh, in June. Uh, Ian is schizophrenic schizophrenic diagnosis when he was 18, spent six months in an institution, has had a couple of episodes since. Um, but um, not at the time, but his psychiatrist has since said to him that he believes the onset of his schizophrenia was due to the copious amounts of marijuana 
he was smoking during his formative years, right? Um, so I'm not an expert on this stuff, right? Um, what came first? Um, what I know is, is this: even those with severe mental health illnesses can and do get better. They can get clean, they can be converted, and they can live productive lives as it relates to them. So don't look for the same sort of a change that you might see in yourself. Look for changes that relates to them, right? Any degree of change. I mean, change is hard, isn't it? And not hard to change. So any degree of change is to be celebrated, whether it's 30 days, 60 days sober. So um, for me, um, I mean, I, I don't know what comes first. I'm sure that there would be different answers depending on, on different people, right, as well. And, you know, if you continually... Man alive. So what happens sometimes is people get clean and you think, well, we just need to help them get clean and whatever else. And then this person is revealed, you know, they're really messed up because they've got mental, really mental health issues. But, you know, if you're, if you're putting chemicals into your body for years, I'm sure, I'm, sure it, I'm sure it will affect. But, you know, like pharma, pharma make all sorts of money after made uh, diagnoses and they love diagnoses because they can throw all sorts of tablets at you. In actual fact, I actually think, you know, uh, addiction being defined as a disease, there was a, a pharmaceutical um, ploy in there because then you can medicate, you know, you can treat it and you can make money and stuff and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, I just try and help people get clean and uh, whatever the presenting issue is and then whatever issues then you know, uh, come to the surface. We try and help them. We try and help them address these things. Um, and that may well mean that some people are on medication that they need to be on to keep keep them stabilised. But um, you know, Ian Ian is a great example of even those with severe severe mental health diagnoses can get clean, rebuild their lives, uh, get converted, and be uh, productive members of the local church. Uh, I'm involved in an addiction program in a prison, and uh, we use the material Celebrate Recovery from Saddleback Church. Are you familiar with that? That's a Christ-centered uh, 12-step program yeah. based on Scripture verses. Mm -hmm. are, are you familiar with it? What do you think of that? Um, personally, I wouldn't use it. Okay, what, why is that? Because I think, I think probably, um, I think... I've got confidence in the scriptures themselves. Absolute confidence in the scriptures themselves. And, and I absolutely think that the Celebrate Recovery is trying to make the teaching of the Bible palatable to, to, to people out here. You know, as to say, oh, well, you know, you know so we, we're, we're, pushing, we're pushing the teaching of the Bible um, into a 12-step model. Rather than using just a model that Scripture gives, I wouldn't. I wouldn't use it. I'm fine that you use it um, if you're using it. And, and here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll, I, I wouldn't use it. But um, people will get clean. People will get converted. I am sure. Um, but what I've often found is that people think, you know, um, I need to go here for my addiction stuff because this stuff here helps me deal with my addiction stuff. And then I come here to church to deal with the Jesus a bit. You know, when actual fact, 
being at church is where it's at. If we're sitting under good preaching, it will help help teachers um, and you know help us to grow. And um, but I get uncomfortable when we try as Christians to piggyback a model that's been a model that's been you know pushed by the world. If you get what I'm saying, I'm not saying don't use it, but personally, that's you know that's what I think. I think, you know, it's, it's like we don't have confidence in what the Bible says, the program of the scriptures. And so we're trying to make it more palatable. We're pushing it into some sort of a 12-step model. And we decided not to use it here as well for the same reason. We felt like the passages, that the scriptures that they used were, were uh, sometimes taken out of context. Yeah, absolutely. It seemed like yeah. there was a uh, an AA model uh, philosophy sprinkled some scripture and and some principles that were were biblical but you didn't go deeply into it and so what didn't seem to be pronounced and primary was the gospel there was some biblical principles but it wasn't the gospel and so we decided to not use it for that same reason just to give you some credibility there um all right one more question um so i read more and more about uh coming off of the serious withdrawal symptoms almost deadly themselves. Um, have, you, have you had guys come through your system or coming off of benzos? And how do, you, how do you guys work through some of that severe withdrawal? Because um, I'm, I'm with, totally with you that the, you know, the gospel addresses that issue, but in that kind of case, there are some medical oh, yeah. things that are going on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, remember what I said about mental health? What the guy said about mental health? Um, he said the church has retreated saying that we don't have anything to offer. Um, I hope I wasn't mis- misunderstood that the medical pres- profession have not got something to offer, but no, the, the Church of Jesus Christ don't step back totally. Um, but we would always work with the medical profession when it comes to detox programmes. So we, we would never say, hey, you know, come on, just ditch the methadone, we'll just pray for you. You know, you know we don't do that, you know what I mean? Um, um, do you guys have some sort of partnership like, with the NHS? Or? We don't. Um, the NHS stand on their own, but you know we we would work in consultation with people's doctors. We would attend, um, you know, um, appointments with doctors and and drug workers uh, who are part of. We take nothing to do with that. Uh, that the the medical side uh, and the detox side, as long as people are on a detox program and committed to reducing, not using on top, we work with them. And as I say, um, our program's 15 weeks. If I get somebody who's on 40 mil of methadone, then it's, it's a very hard push to say to that person, you need to be clean in 15 weeks. We're interested in the direction, not the speed, right? So maybe maybe after the 15 weeks, they may be clean, but they come back and do another 15 weeks, as long as they're moving in uh, the right direction. But uh, the thing about benzodiazepines uh, in our country, you know, they're called Valium, right? Um, well... Um, we, you've seen there was a huge amount of deaths in Scotland from benzodiazepines. Um, but there are things on our streets uh, called the Blue Death, which are called Street Valium. Street Valium. And uh, there's no Valium in them. There's no Valium in them. And they're killing people. Um, the methadone, the benzodiazepines, and the other, the other meds that were up there called gabapentin and pregabalin, they, they help their pain and they help with nerve pain and stuff like that. But 
Each of those three um, substances affect the respiratory system. They slow the respiratory system down. Those three types of meds taken together is a lethal combination. Um, so people who are on methadone taking the street Valium, and what happens is they go into a coma um, um, and they die. So people take a lot of fits uh, coming off of uh, Valium and stuff like that. And there's, you know, so we would we would be working in consultation uh, with doctors. We don't oversee this. The medical profession oversee. We're a community program. We're, we're non-residential. Uh, if you're residential, then you would have in, in-house doctors writing prescriptions for people and stuff. But because we're non-residential, the medical profession uh, would, uh, would, would take care of that stuff. And there's only one substance, really, that someone should never come off of completely like that, and it's alcohol. Um, uh, that could kill you. Uh, you could uh, take alcoholic seizures um, and die. So we would always encourage folks, especially if they've been using alcohol over a prolonged period, um, to taper off and to, to maybe look to get a, um, a, a detox from the doctor um, to help with that uh, librium or something. Uh, something like that. Good question. Thank you. You've been listening to a message from Truth For Life. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.